5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify himself for her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Lord, we just thank you for your word and your instruction. We pray that this morning that we will hear your voice through Pastor John. We will hear your voice through your word. We will hear your voice through your Holy Spirit. Pray that you continue to transform our minds, transform our hearts, and Lord, that we can submit to you. Lord, that we can glorify you in all that we do. We praise you for your great work. We praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. My hope is that you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I'm sure that, as is always the case, when you get together with families and in-laws, it always makes for a splendid perfect time of thankful family bliss. Amen? No? Come on now. Families, I mean, that's here's where we are in Ephesians, the, the, the family relationship. And, uh, and we all know that when families do get together, it, it often seems just the opposite of that, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And um, it shouldn't be that way, especially for those who are redeemed by the blood because we are enabled with the perfected love of Christ to love in the manner in which he loved us and loves us. But it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers of the 1800s that said, and I quote, when home is ruled according to God's word, angels might be asked to stay with us and they would not find themselves out of their element. And then the great Bible commentator Warren Wearsby mentioning Spurgeon's comment on the family and angels dwelling with them, he said this, and I quote, instead of angels being guests in some homes, it seems that demons are their masters. End quote. And, and that's really the case. I mean, you know, the family is upside down, especially in America. Families are torn apart. And, and how many people today are victims of, of divorce? Children who come from broken homes. Um, uh, people that have been through numerous marriages. And, and it seems almost as though there's no hope. But if the Word of God ruled the home, God's Word, if God's rule if God ruled homes, rather, by His Word, how many families would stay intact? The Barner Group, research group, they're a polling group, and they po polled numerous people, believers and non-believers, regarding divorce, and that Jesus Himself taught that divorce is a sin unless there is infidelity or desertion. And it seems that 15% of people strongly agreed with the statement that when a couple gets divorced outside of one of them committing adultery, that it's sin. 16% moderately agreed. 66% disagreed with that statement. Most of them strongly dismissing the notion completely. Understandable for non-believers. Now check this out. Professing born-again Christians, 52% of them disagree with what Scripture says about divorce. 52% of those who profess to be born-again believers. And by the way, there's no such thing as a Christian that's not born again, according to Jesus. Jesus said, unless ye be born again, ye shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Again, just a sad reflection of the state in which the church is in today 
and it's just a total disregard to the authority of Scripture. It's very sad. And there again, it seems as though marriage is hopeless. It seems to be hopeless. It seems for a man and woman to be married 40, 50, 60 years today, it seems like it's not even possible. And I think we gain some great insight. If you hold your finger there in Ephesians and turn to 2 Timothy, we get a little insight here as to seeing why. Why marriages don't last today. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've been studying through Ephesians and we see that God has ordained specific roles for men and women within the family structure and within the church. And above all, Jesus Christ is the head. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the family. And any time that we step out of our God-given roles as men or women within the family structure or within the church setting, there's dysfunction. Anytime we compromise those specific roles we've been given by God, there's dysfunction, there's sickness, there's something wrong. Just as our bodies respond to the signals of our brain, for me to open and close my hand, if something disallowed me to do that, there would be a problem between my brain and the nerves of my body to my hand. There would be dysfunction there. There would be, be something wrong. And any time men don't stand as the leader of their home or women don't submit to their husbands as they would to the Lord or any time that men do not stand in the position of leadership within the church or they relinquish it to women, there's dysfunction. There's something wrong. And I think we gain some insight, as I said, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as to why at least the family is not what it ought to be according to the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people, Paul says, turn away. Turn away from them. A lot of people go to church. A lot of people say, I'm a Christian. Many, many people. But this is a very interesting passage. In verse 1, it, it talks about the last days. Now, the last days refer to the first coming of Christ in His earthly ministry and His return in glory. He came to die the first time, raised from the dead. The next time He comes, He's coming in His glory. He's coming to judge. And He's going to take home those who are truly His. So we're living in the last of the last days. And in these last days, look what takes place. Men, becomes, men become, verse 2, lovers of who? Of themselves. Men become lovers of self, lovers of money. They become arrogant, proud. Those types of things will create great difficulty in sustaining a marriage. When, when people become lovers of themselves, arrogant and prideful, that will hinder a loving relationship between a husband and a wife, between children and their parents, parents and their children. Let alone the church body functioning under the headship of Christ. In verse 3, this is very interesting. This, in verse 3 where it says unloving, this is a word that means this. It means hard-hearted towards kindred. In other words, it means a lack of normal family love. Just a lack of, of a child having respect for their parents as they're commanded to. It'll be gone. A husband loving his wife, being committed to his wife, a woman submitting herself to the authority of a husband within a family will be gone. And we see that clearly today. Verse 4, because they're lovers of what? 
pleasure. Pleasure seekers do not and cannot love God because if you're a pleasure seeker, you become an idolater. You can't, God will not stand in competition to anyone or anything. And it's very easy, especially in this culture, to fall into idolatrous worship. Amusement. Amuse. A without, to muse, to think, to ponder. A without, muse, to think, without thinking. That's what amusement is. You don't have to think. You don't have to dialogue. You just take in and take in and take in, and you become addicted to it. God becomes secondary. So one of the characteristics we see of, last, of the last days is an absolute collapse and failure of family love. But verse 5, look what they have. You know what they have? They have a form of godliness, morphosis. This means formation or an appearance of godliness. We go to church with the Bible. We go to a Bible study, you know. We act like we're interested, but inside... No interest whatsoever. No interest whatsoever to take what we're taught of the Word of God, but yet we profess Christ and apply it to our lives to transform us from the inside out to bring glory to the one who saved us. A form of godliness. And we see that today. Many churches, big churches, packed to the gills. A form of godliness. Very dangerous. No intention of putting their supposed belief into action. It's no wonder Paul says, from such people, turn away. He's saying, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Now, that kind of last day's bleak outlook causes us to ask the question, is there any hope for marriage? Is there any hope to have a lasting relationship of 30, 40, 50, 60 years as long as the Lord would give us life on the earth? Is that possible today? The answer... Absolutely. For the Christian, it is. For the believer, it is. Because here we are, we look, now back to Ephesians. As we look at this, we see, and we looked last week, that Christ is the head of the church. And just as Christ is the head of the church, so is the husband the head of the wife. And the wife is to submit to the husband. Verse 22, wives submit here to their husbands. Now we're getting to the husbands and their role as leader. And we'll see today that a husband is to love their wife as Christ loved the church. And then he, get, he gets on to children obeying parents. And then he gets on to relationships between uh, servants and masters or you to your boss and a boss to a servant and so on. And he's just working his way through all these relationships. And the reason that these type of relationships are possible takes us back to verse 18 of chapter 5. And what's the command there? Do you remember? Be what? Filled with the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You can't have the Holy Spirit if you're not a believer. And if you are a believer, you can't not have the Holy Spirit. And if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you're able to be filled with the Spirit. Therefore, you're able to obey. We're able to love with the love of Christ. Therefore, because of being filled with the Spirit in verse 18, the product is verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It produces a heart of joy. If you're filled with the Spirit, you will have a heart of joy. And then, gratitude, thankfulness. Because if you don't understand, brothers and sisters, if you don't understand what you're saved from and what you're saved unto, you will be miserable. You will look like you're miserable. You will feel miserable. But when you understand the depth that Christ went to pay the price for your sin, you can't not be happy. Not everything in life is happy. You can't not have that joy. So we're commanded, be filled with the Spirit. When one is filled with the Spirit, you'll have joy. There'll be thanks. You'll have a thankful heart. Here we are at Thanksgiving. How, much, how many of us are truly thankful? Are we truly thankful? You know, I tell my kids often, life as you know it, hot water, shower, your little computer, electricity, cars, fuel, 
All of that can be gone just like that. Done. We saw a tsunami wipe everything out here about a year ago. An earthquake here, life as you know it could be over in 15 seconds. It won't be as simple as going to the store and getting what you want when you want it. You won't be going through any drive-through. You will be seeking and searching for drinking water. Are we thankful? So all that being said, we get to this role of husband. We get to this role of husband. In verse 25 it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now there's three aspects to mature masculine leadership within the home. Notice this, mature masculine leadership. You want to be a hot dog? You want to be all macho? You, 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 you want to be a real man? You need to pay close attention to what's taught today through the scriptures. Teaching of the Holy Spirit. Three aspects to mature masculine leadership within the marriage. The first, the first aspect is that that type of love is sacrificial. And this is in your bulletin. The second aspect of mature masculine leadership is that it's purifying. And the third aspect is that it's honoring. It's sacrificial, it's purifying, and it's honoring. And we see aspect number one in verse 25, that this type of love is sacrificial. It says, Husband, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for her. Who's the her? Her is the bride, which is the church. That's us. Christ gave himself for us. We're talking about God becoming a human being here. Okay? God, the Son of God, stepped out of glory, lowered himself to take on human flesh, to become like one of us, yet without sin, and to die the death of a sinner. And, of course, rose again. Now, Paul has a whole lot more to say to men than he does women, as far as the marital relationship goes. A whole lot more. He sets the standard so high. It's, this is the highest level possible, gents. This is to love our wives like Christ loved the church. That's absolute total sacrifice. Sacrifice. So Paul sees within the Christian home an illustration of the love that Christ has for the church. He's the head. He's the groom. One day the groom is coming for his bride. And the bride is adorned in white. Because you're forgiven by his blood, you're adorned in white. And he continually purifies his church. Because the groom is not going to have an impure bride. One of the Roman writers, about a hundred, hundred and so years before Christ, Cato wrote this, and I quote, If you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, kill her without a trial. But if she catches you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. She has no right. End quote. You see, a man, a man in this culture had absolute control over the female population. Control over his wife, control over his daughters. If he wanted to kill him for something, for some disobedience or dishonor or whatever, he could kill him without any legal recourse whatsoever. You know, there's another form of matrimonial disregard today. And it's the guy who says, you know what, honey? As long as you fulfill my desires, as long as you look good, and by the way, as long as you make me look good, you can be my wife. But once you cease doing any of that, you're out of here. Another thing that's common today, it's a guy who has this juvenile midlife crisis. Okay? Middle age, he starts... All of a sudden, you notice he starts combing his hair all weird. Starts dressing like a teenager, you know. He goes out, starts getting tattoos, and the guy's, you know, 40. Oh my, I am loaded with tattoos, but that was before Christ, so it doesn't count. He starts getting all tattooed up, and, you know, he starts dressing like a teenager, acting like a teenager. He starts clubbing. He starts going to the clubs. And in the process of clubbing, he becomes a little skirt chaser. In the process of becoming a skirt chaser, chasing down women, all, the, all of a sudden he runs into some insecure woman who fits his little fancy. And then he comes and he says, Oh, I found my soulmate. And, you know, 
I know I married you, but you know, you're not my soulmate. All, all the while, the guy professes to be a Christian. I, I have one thing to say to that guy. Actually, I have two things to say to him. The first one would be, you better examine yourself, buddy, to see if you're even in the faith. And number two, grow up, go home, and be a real man. Amen? I was hoping to hear a lot of man voices there. That's good. You see, in Paul's culture, women were looked at as second-class citizens. They were looked at as slaves. They were looked at as objects. So this teaching in this text was absolutely radical. Radical teaching for men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This was totally contrary to what was going on in the culture. Totally contrary. Last week someone said to me, they leave me a little note, you know, people don't like the authority of Scripture, so some people, not many, will complain or they write me a note. And last week I got one that said, because the context was wives submit to your husbands. Right? And the note said, the Bible is not clear in the 21st century. Things or the scripture is not black and white in the 21st century. But I, you know, I could venture to say that that person would agree with the text today. Amen. Because it was a female, she might agree with this text today. So, in other words, we don't pick and choose what we want to obey. This was contrary to the culture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Because I tell you what, if you fall out of love with your wife, you fall into sin. You fall out of love, you fall into sin. This kind of love, love what? Just as, just as what? Just as Christ loved the church. That's how you love your wife. That's how a man's to love his wife. You want your wife to submit? Wives, you submit no matter what he does. We learn that. But, gentlemen, you love your wife like this, she'll desire to submit. Desire. A spirit-filled husband does not love his wife by what she can do. What she does for him. It's all about what he does for her. What he does for her. You see, Christ determined to love us in spite of our shame. In spite of the fact that we're not worthy of His love. You realize that, amen? We don't deserve that love. Husbands, we're to love. To love. Look at what love is. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. If you were here, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 this morning because we, we, we opened with this text. Our opening reading. This kind of love is revealed through death. Christ revealed this love by physically dying in our place, rising from the dead. We die, gentlemen, by denying self. We die by denying self. This is love that swallows pride. This is the type of love that swallows pride. This is the type of love that swallows self-ambition. This is the kind of love that kills the fantasy that says this, Hmm, I wonder what my life would be like had I have married so-and-so. Or if I was with her. Loving your wife kills those type of things. Sacrifice. You are to love your wife, only your life, giving your life to her and in making sure that she grows in Christ. That's your responsibility. That's our responsibility, gentlemen. Now look at 1 Corinthians 13 and notice that every characteristic of love listed here is in verb form. In other words, it's an action. It's an action. Chapter 13, we're going to begin at verse 4. Love suffers long. That's what patience is. Patience means to, to suffer long. So if you pray for patience, you're praying that you can suffer long. You know that? Lord, I pray for patience. Okay. And God in His sovereignty may allow certain things in your life to cause you to suffer long. Right? So you become more like Christ because He's long-suffering with us. 
So love suffers long and love is kind. Love, look at what it doesn't do. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked and it thinks no evil. So men, fantasy relationships in your mind, that's not love. That's lust and that's not love. And love thinks no evil. If you think those things, take it to the cross. Repent. Let it be covered by the blood and move on. Transform your thinking. The Word of God transforms our thinking. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Iniquity means something crooked. It means a perverse path. It does not rejoice in that. It rejoices in the truth. What's truth? The Word of God. It bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So there's no excuse saying, I just don't love her anymore. If you don't love her anymore, then you're in sin. Because love is not an emotion. Love is an act. Emotions are attached to it. The feelings are attached to it. But love is a verb. It's, it, it does something. Love does something. Christ did something. And that's how we're to love our wives. And you're able to do it if you're a believer here today. If you're not a believer here today, you don't have this supernatural ability. You can mark this down. 1 Peter 1.22 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. See, we have the capacity to love with Christ's love because we've been born again. If He resides in us, the author of love, we have the ability to love as He loves. Romans chapter 5 says that the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. We have the Spirit of God within us, and as a believer, we are therefore able to love as Christ loves. You don't have to even pray, Lord, Lord, fill me with your love. You, it's already promised. I often pray, Lord, help me get your perfected love out in practical ways. Please show me with wisdom how to get your perfect love out of me and into other people. You know, my eyebrows raise, man, when professing Christians follow the ways of the world and they just simply throw in the towel in marriage. They just throw it in. We just don't get along. We just don't love each other anymore. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. A form form of godliness. First John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. If one doesn't love like this, one must examine himself to see if he's in the faith. This supernatural love. While well, she's committed adultery on me. Okay? The Bible does speak about adultery and desertion in that Jesus did say that divorce is permissible for someone who's committed adultery but God's grace abounds as well and I've seen God work through many many marriages where there has been adultery amen God can restore I've seen it time and time again time and time again so the Bible does speak about that but if she's there it's your responsibility to love her if she abandons you, she departs. I mean, you can't love her if she's not there. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about abandonment. Two people get married. Let's say they're non-believers. One becomes a believer. So long as the unbeliever is willing to live with the believer, then the believer is to remain with the unbeliever. If the unbeliever chooses to depart, and let's say in this case it was the wife chose to depart from the husband, he's free to remarry once the divorce is final if she departs. Or if adultery is committed and it's not worked out and it's not restored, he or she is free to remarry. The one who hasn't committed the adultery. Supernatural love. See, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek to retaliate. It's not revengeful. It does not, gentlemen, keep a list of wrongs. 
You know, every time you have a disagreement, you pull out this list. You know, hey, three months ago, you said this. Two months ago, you did that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Does not seek its own. You know, unforgiveness will be the first thing that will begin to destroy a marriage. Unforgiveness. And the product of unforgiveness is this. Bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness is something that will actually destroy you. Bitterness, unforgiveness, if you hold resentment, anger and hatred towards someone, it's a sign, obviously, that you haven't forgiven them. And if you haven't forgiven them, you become bitter. Just layer upon layer of callousness builds up and you become embittered. I've been around a lot of bitter men. Their countenance, is they look like a lemon sucker. You know? Just like that. Like they suck on lemons all day. Conversations with them, nothing but complaints. Always complaining. No joy. No joy whatsoever. Very unpleasant. Dying to self regularly, men and women, saves you from becoming defensive, revengeful, hateful, and bitter. Dying to self. Because forgiveness is to be spontaneous. Right here, right now. Spontaneous. We've been forgiven so much, amen? And we ought to likewise forgive. Never to be brought up again. Don't bring it up. Gentlemen, don't bring up things of the past. This is how you love your wife. If I keep focused on how Christ loves me, how He loves His church, I in choosing to love my wife, notice, choosing to love my wife like this will not will keep no record of wrongs. We'll keep no record of wrongs. Also, gentlemen, being humble enough to receive reproof and correction from your wife. Okay? In other words, she holds you accountable to your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you fall into some type of sin and she comes to you and reproves you for that sin, you love her, you'll receive the reproof. Happens to me all the time. See, that's the thing about living with a godly woman. A godly woman knows what the Word of God says. And a godly woman, in love, will hold you accountable to the very truth that you live and proclaim. Especially when you preach. She actually expects me to live up to all this stuff. <laughs> Which is a good thing. Absolutely a good thing. But that's what love does. You receive correction. And, and ladies, when you correct, when, when you come to your husband and reproof, do it in love. I mean, do it in love. And that, that's all part of, you know, wives submit to your husbands, husbands, you know, you are one with your wife. You have the role of head of the home. If she's a godly woman, she knows what the word says. If she reproves you for something, and perhaps there's some sin you don't even recognize in your life. Like the, the sin of attitude. Things like that. Submit to that reproof. Accept that reproof. This is death to self. It's not easy, gents, especially if you have a strong leadership role, if you're, if you're a strong leader and, and you are goal-driven, goal-oriented, if you're that type of a man, it takes even more death to self. If you're a strong leader, more death to self. This is a man who leads with love and with strength. Love and with strength. And really, gentlemen, we set the tone at home. The environment of the home is really set by the leadership of the man. Very important. Very important. And there's some guys in the church... They want to be these spiritual giants. They want to be seen as the spiritual giant. So they're constantly telling you what they're doing or they're trying to maybe jockey for position. But all along, there's this guy over here. He's just quiet, humble, serving. You kind of keep an eye on him. You know, and when I talk about humility, I mean true humility. 
You know, you ask the guy, hey, what have you been up to? Oh, not false humility. I'm just serving the Lord in humility. Ah. Uh, no. True humility. And the reason the quiet guy sometimes, maybe he seems timid or, or, or maybe not as strong of a leader, is because he's quietly leaving his first ministry, which is at home. Those are the kind of guys you want leading the church. Those are the kind of men that you want to serve alongside. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And that leads us to aspect number 2, verse 26. Verse 26 of Ephesians chapter 5 says this, We love her as Christ loved the church. In order that, verse 26, he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by what? By the word. Sanctify means to be set apart. In the marriage ceremony, the husband is set apart to belong to the wife, and the wife is set apart to belong to the woman, and they become one within marriage. Now, the husband has a role, a distinct role, ordained by God, and the woman has a distinct role, ordained by God. The woman submits to the husband, who's the head, just as Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the family. His responsibility is to be priest of the home. And to be priest of the home means you wash your wife in the Word. To wash her in the Word. This is a God-given arrangement. We know as Christians that Christ continually cleanses His church. Amen? We join together here to be washed in the Word. No Christian is ever going to grow without a continual focus upon the Word of God, getting into the Word of God, and getting the Word of God into you. You'll never grow. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't own a Bible. There's no such thing as a Christian who who isn't continually growing. Now, granted, someone comes to faith and they don't know doctor or anything. That's by God's grace. But if God graces someone and pulls them out of, world, of the world, pulls them out of darkness, the work he begins, that work he will what? He will complete. He will complete the work. And part of completing that work is growing that new believer in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, which comes only by his word. And he says that I have exalted my word to that of my own name. Now, we have to take that very, very serious, gentlemen, because I can't wash my wife in the word if I don't know what the word says. Very simple. This is my bride. I wash my bride in the truth. To wash my bride in the truth, I have to know the truth. I have to be in the truth. Christ is the head. He continually washes his bride, the church. Because he is the truth. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the Word. He's the Logos. He's the, the complete overall Word of God himself. You know, in John chapter 13, you remember Jesus in the upper room the night before he was crucified. He's with his disciples, right? And he kneels down and he washes their feet. He gets to Peter, and he says, Lord, far be it for you to wash my feet. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. No part of me. He says, well, in that case, Lord, wash my head, wash my whole body. And he says, look, you have no need of a bath, for you're already clean. And John 13.10 says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. You see, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you were washed from your sins once and for all and forever. You understand that? Amen? Your position in Christ is, is positional righteousness. You are cleansed from your sin. You will never be judged for your sin because Christ took your sin. But in Jesus' day, they wore sandals. They walked around dusty roads. And you walk around dusty roads, your feet get dirty. So you could get up in the morning and take a bath, but as you walk around the dusty roads, your feet get dirty. And you walk into someone's home and eat dinner, you would recline at a table. Many times your feet were by someone's face. You would want to wash your feet. Someone would wash your feet for you. The same is true for the Christian. 
We're once and for all washed, but we need a daily cleansing as we walk through this sinful world, you see. A daily cleansing. That's why we must be in the world, be in the Word, to cleanse us from the world. Jesus said in John 15, verse 3, You're already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. We're the branch. Jesus is the vine. All the life is in the vine. If the branch isn't into the vine, there'd be no life. But if we abide in Christ, all the life that's in Christ goes into the branch, you see. And what comes out of the branch? Fruit. You don't make fruit. You, bear, you, you abide in Christ and you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. And then it's our responsibility. You must bless your wife by continually exposing her to the Word of God. Because the Word cleanses. You're the priest of the home. You're the teacher of the home. You give the foretelling of God's truth. Okay? You're the prophet of the home, small p. Okay? Foretelling, not foretelling futuristic events and getting all wacko and crazy. You're foretelling that which is already written. You're expounding the truth of God and blessing your wife and your family with the truth. By living it first. Teacher of the home. Another thing that purifies your wife, one thing that will purify her, is the word. One of the things you want to prevent impurity is to not lead her into temptation. In other words, you don't want to expose her to things that aren't of God. You don't want to expose her to things that are evil or lead her into a place of temptation that will cause her to be defiled. You don't want to do that. Don't expose her. You know, honey, we need those uh, new quads, so you're going to have to go get yourself another part-time job on top of the one you have. Okay, because uh, we need to have fun. So you're sending her back out into the world amidst a bunch of unbelieving men, and you're influenced day by day by non-believers, unbelievers, Men in their wickedness. So you want to do everything you can to protect your wife. That's our job, protector. Christ protects and he guards his church. The husband is to guard and protect his wife. To cleanse her with the word and to protect her from being defiled, from being spotted by the world. Big responsibility. You don't want to bring up past incidents to hurt her. You don't need to bring up past sins to just jab at her, to hurt her, to cause pain. You don't have to push the buttons that irritate her, right? You know what irritates her? Don't, we don't need to push the buttons. We want to constantly bring the word to our wife because that builds her faith. How do we do that? How do we do it? There are many ways to do it, and it's really simple, gentlemen. Some, some practical ways to do it is to be certain that you are here to receive God's Word and that your wife is next to you. That's the starting point. Make sure that we join together with the saints on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, to receive the Word of God with my wife. Be certain that you allow her the opportunity to grow. Allow her to be in a Bible study with other women. Allow her to listen to sermons and things like that at home. As a matter of fact, listen to them with her. Encourage it. Don't hinder it. Don't hinder her growth. Don't be intimidated if she seems to be growing quicker than you are. Perhaps she knows more than you do regarding things of the Lord. You don't have to be intimidated by it. Then you will really stunt your growth. See, when Christ is the center of your life, gents, it becomes contagious. It will rub off. That anointing, that's what anointing means, a rubbing off of. It will, anoint, it will rub right off of you, right onto your wife, right onto your kids if you have them, people in your life, where you work. Christ in you will be made visible by His power. 
by His power. They'll see Christ in you. Don't put her in a position to be tempted. Very dangerous. I know a lot of guys that do that causes a lot of long time uh, scars, hurt and pain, deeper sin and so on. The Lord is constantly bidding His church to be pure. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Come out from among them and be ye separate. Come out from among them and be separate. From what? From the worldliness of the world. We have to be in the world, right? But we're called not to be of it. You can be in it. We have to be. That's why I'm so against the whole communes. You know, Christ doesn't call us to just separate ourselves into our little Christian club. You know? No. Separate ourselves from worldliness, not from the world itself. We have to go out in the power of the Spirit to influence the world. And it begins right at home. Right at home. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. See, if you idolize stuff, gentlemen, if you idolize stuff, the temptation is to have your wife out in places that God's not glorified, where there is greater temptation, all to fulfill your lust of either entertainment or things. Stuff. Stuff. You know, it's kind of like the pregnant woman, married, her husband sits up on the couch, lazy. They've got five kids. She's pregnant. And she says in despair, my husband said that I can quit one of my jobs once the baby comes. And yet, he does nothing. Not a reflection of what a man is to be in the home. Not a reflection. You know that white gown? that our brides wore when we were married. That white gown is a picture of the wife being separate from all others. Pure. Separate. Yours. Yours alone. And her being yours alone comes with a great responsibility. Great responsibility. To see that she's purified with the Word. She's kept unspotted from the world. James 1.27 says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. People remember that one, but they forget the second part. And keep oneself unspotted from the world. Unspotted from worldliness. You know, I've seen kids get so caught up into entertainment, so caught up, because they're inundated all day long with information. All day long. Christian, these not Christian kids, but they go to Christian schools. And because they know what to say and how to say it, how to answer the questions about knowing Jesus and all this, being inundated all day long, they're consumed with those things. And they either are kept from the truth, or they grow to think that they're believers when in reality they're not. Right into adulthood. Because they said some prayer. And Jesus said in the last day, when He comes back, not all who say what? Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. For many will cry out and say, But Lord, we did all these things in your name. I went to Christian school. I did this. It was all for you. He says, Depart from me. I never knew you. Deception. The devil is a deceiver. And gentlemen, it's up to us to train up our kids, to train up and, and, and nurture our wives to become more godly. And for you to be that priest of the home, you have got to be in the Word, and you've got to get the Word into you. You get the Word into you, you will be transformed. More Christ-like. Heavy responsibility. Heavy. That's what we're going to be judged for, gentlemen. You won't be judged for your sin if you're a Christian, but we will stand at that judgment seat of Christ being judged for what we've done with our families as the leader of our family. First responsibility. First responsibility. Christ's love for the church gives him the desire to keep his bride clean. And we, as under-shepherds of the great shepherd, are called to keep our bride purified, clean with the Word of God, spiritually clean, spiritually clean. 
1 Corinthians 14.35 says this, And if you ladies want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. See, we're called to be the theological resource within our homes. So we better know what we're teaching, amen? And I believe this. Those who aren't not doing this, those husbands that are not doing this, there's a couple reasons it's probably happening. Or that it's not happening. Number one, no matter what they say, they may not be saved because the Bible says that the natural man does not understand the things of God, nor can he, because he's a natural man. He's unsaved. And if a man has absolutely no desire for the things of God, if he's a Christian, he's either in some type of unrepentant, unconfessed sin, or he thinks he's saved and he's not. There's no other reason. He's either a Christian and he's in some type of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. He's just lazy, which is sin. Undisciplined, which is sin. Or he's still a natural man. He's lost. In modern America, especially in these last 75 years, I believe that the main cause for most men who proclaim to be Christians is a lack of discipline because of so much distraction. A lot of distraction. Just in the age of entertainment, the age of amusement, from radio to television to phones to computers to games, all these crazy things. Preoccupation with things as such, mentally or morally, will kill the God-given priestly role that men have been given by God. Will kill it. Will kill it, destroy it. John Piper wrote about it. In his book, Taste and See, the subtitle, Savoring the Supremacy of God in All of Life. And I want to read something from it that has to do with this computer age. Now, he talks about this, these dangers of computer unreality, he calls it. There's, there's five dangers, but there's five vows that a man can make, or five resolutions that he can make. Danger number one, the hook of constant curiosity. Personal computers offer a never-ending possibility for discovery. Even the basic environment of Windows can consume hours and days and weeks of curious punching and experimenting. Color schemes, layouts, screensavers, shortcuts, icons, file managing, calculators, clocks, and calendars. Then there are the endless software applications consuming weeks of your time as they lure you in their intricacies. All this is very deceptive, giving the illusion of power and effectiveness, but leaving you with a feeling of emptiness and nervousness at the end of the day. Can you relate to that? Resolution or a vow to be made, I will strictly limit my experimental time on the computer and devote myself more to truth than to technique. Danger number two, the empty world of virtual reality, which is unreality. How sad to see brilliant creative people pouring hours and days of their lives into creating cities and armies and adventures that have no connection with reality. We have one life to live. All our powers are given to us by the real God for the real world leading to a real heaven and a real hell. Resolution? I will spend my constructive creative energy not in the unreality of virtual reality, but in the reality of the real world. Danger number three. Personal relations with my PC. Like no other invention, the personal computer comes closest to being like a person. You can play games with it. There are programs that will dialogue with you about your personality. It will talk to you. It will always be there for you. It is smarter than your dog. The great danger here is that we really become comfortable with this manageable electronic person and gradually drift away from the unpredictable, frustrating, sometimes painful dealings with human persons. Resolution? I will not replace the risk of personal relationships with impersonal electronic safety. 
Danger number four, the risk of tryst. Tryst is, is, is an agreement between lovers to meet. Sexual affairs begin in private time together, extended conversations, and a sharing of the soul. Be cautious. If you find yourself talking to a woman that's not your wife and you're sharing deep things within you, stop. It can now be done in the absolute seclusion of your private email screen name. It can be immediate and live or delayed and recorded. You can think that it's just nothing until he or she shows up in town. It has happened already too many times. Resolution. I will not cultivate a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a person of the opposite sex other than my spouse. If I am single, I will not cultivate such a relationship with another person's spouse. The fifth and final danger, PC porn. More insidious than X-rated videos, we can now not only watch, but join the perversity in the privacy of our own den. Interactive porn will allow you to do it or make them do it with the mouse. I've never seen it, nor do I ever intend to. It kills the spirit. It drives God away. It depersonalizes people. It quenches prayer. It blanks out the Bible. It cheapens the soul. It, dis it destroys spiritual powers, and it defiles everything. Resolution, I will never open any program for sexual stimulation, nor purchase or download anything pornographic. To be a man of God in the role of head of the family, role of head of the wife, is not to be passive, it's not to be fearful, it's not to be unread, and it's not to be an undisciplined victim. It is to be persistent, diligent, sinner, saved by grace, falling at the foot of the cross, growing the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and washing your wife in truth. That's what we're commanded to be, gents. If a man will step out of fantasy land and into the reality of eternity, your thinking will be transformed. So if you're caught up in fantasy land, you must repent and step out of it and become the man God wants you to be. Your wife will desire to submit. Amen, ladies? Amen. Aspect number three, verse 27. In order that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You know, spots are caused by defilement on the outside. That's that worldliness that we need to be washed by, cleansed by daily. Amen? Dirty feet need a foot washing. We pick up the dirt of a sinful world, we need to be cleansed with the Word. Those are spots. The Word of God is the washing agent. James 1.27 says, Keep yourselves unspotted from the world. Wrinkles, it has been said, are caused by decay on the inside. They give evidence of old age. But as a church is nourished by the word, eventually the wrinkles flatten out. They disappear. You know, you see a lot of stuffy old churches. with You walk in and they're spiritually dead. The reason churches are spiritually dead is because the people in the building are dead. Spiritually dead. There's no vital life of the Word of God flowing from the pulpit into the lives and then out of the people. It's built up by tradition, entertainment, fill in the blank. The church is not a place to go get entertained. It's not. This is a place to be built up in truth because you are an eternal being. You will live forever. And if you're in Christ, you will dwell with Christ forever in eternity. This is preparation for eternity. That's it. That's it. And for those who aren't saved, the Word of God bids them to come to faith in Jesus Christ because if they don't, their eternity is hell. That's heavy. That's heavy. We don't want to become wrinkly, right? Let's not get wrinkly. Let's keep the Word of God upheld to where it's supposed to be upheld and it will flatten out the wrinkles. And the desire will be to 
be kept unspotted from the world. Because one day the church will be presented in heaven as a glorious church. Now here it is. Think about this, gents. Christ is going to present His bride, the church, to the Father. Right? That'll be you and I standing with Christ in glory, presented to the Father as perfect. White as snow. So if we're called to love our wives as Christ loves the church, then we must wash her, cleanse her, and present her in a manner of honor to the Lord himself. Because Jude 24 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. This is the place of honor. And we're to present our wives as such, man. Just like this. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes dying to self. It takes discipline. It takes separating myself from entertainment. Overindulgent entertainment. Okay? We're not legalists here. I tell you what, you give yourself to amusement, you won't be thinking about anything. Remember, amuse, A, without, muse to think. You'll be thinking of nothing. You'll dialogue over nothing. You'll just be, give me more, give me more, give me more. Duh. Right? We don't want to be dull. We don't want to be dull. True love is concerned about this. True love is always concerned for the purity of its object. True love is always concerned about the purity of its object. The object of Christ's affection is His church. His church. Paul, his object of affection was the congregation. That's why he wrote the epistles. He wrote this letter. Epistle means letter to the church at Ephesus. Because his concern was for spiritual purity. The husband... His object of concern of purity is supposed to be his wife. It's to be his wife. Some guy's object of love is their truck. Some guy's object of love is their boat or their job or their career. Some guy's object of love is themselves. You know, I know a guy who had two part-time jobs. His one part-time job was working out at the gym. His other part-time job was standing in front of the mirror. Oiling himself up, looking good, flexing. That was his life, consumed with himself. Gentlemen, if you're married, disciple her. Purify her. Don't expose her to evil, because her, her purity is your responsibility. Gentlemen, if you're not married, prepare yourself if you don't have the gift of singleness. Prepare yourself now to know what it is to be a man of God, to know what it means to be a man of God, and to know what it means to be a husband. Not according to a culture, but according to the Word of God. Amen? And your wife will joyfully desire to submit to you. But ladies, again... Reminder last week, if your husband is not in that place now, and perhaps he's not here with you now, go home and submit to him anyhow. Because you, without a word, may win him to obedience in the word. 1 Peter 3. Amen, brothers and sisters? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sharpness of the Word. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You love Your church so much. We thank You that You gave Yourself for Your church, for Your bride, which is us. We thank You, Lord, that in Christ we are without spot, that we are cleansed, that we stand and a gown of white purity because of the blood of Christ, that our position is in you, and that the Father looks upon us with joy because we're covered by the purity 
of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I want to pray for families in this church that, that men will take this role of responsibility to be the priest of the home, to wash and cleanse their wives, Lord, with a godly lifestyle. It will not hinder them from growing in the grace and knowledge of your Son. And I pray, Lord, that we would be rightful representatives of men and women who rightly reflected the God-given roles ordained by you going all the way back to creation. We pray for our children, that they'll grow up to see the love of Christ lived out before them, and that they in turn would yearn for and desire a deeper relationship with you, would have a deeper desire and hunger for the true Word of God, and not aspects of entertainment that's called church. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a rightful reflection of you in this community as a body of believers saved by grace who love with the love of Christ and have an abundant amount of love for the written word of Almighty God. For your glory always, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.